You are listening to After Sunday, a Vintage Church NOLA podcast hosted by lead pastor Dustin Turner. After Sunday is focused on helping you live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church Monday through Saturday. Here is this week's episode. Welcome to After Sunday. My name is Dustin Turner, and I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. In the life of the church, Sundays are important, but not everything happens on Sunday. Life happens Monday through Saturday. So my hope is that this podcast inspires and equips you to live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church after Sunday. On this week's episode, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Bob Stewart. Dr. Stewart serves as professor of philosophy and theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and occupies the Greer Herd Chair of Faith and Culture. Not only does he have all of that, but when I was working on my master's degree and uh, my PhD, he was one of my professors as well. And so uh, very excited to have him on. And we're going to be actually talking about one of the subjects that we looked at in one of my seminars, uh, the Historical Jesus Seminar, talking about the resurrection today. We are uh, days away from Easter Sunday, and obviously the most important thing when we talk about Easter is the resurrection of Jesus. And so many people might have doubts or have questions about the resurrection. And so I wanted to have Dr. Stewart on the podcast. He's written on this subject. He's studied this subject to give us some insight into the resurrection and uh, to understand it and understand that it is a historical event. And that's why we continue to remember it, continue to celebrate it, and ultimately why we are Christians. And so, Dr. Stewart, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's jump in because we have a few things that I want to talk about. You know, a lot of people talk about the resurrection as if it's uh, it was kind of uh, not a newer idea. It either came from the Greco-Roman world or it came from the Jewish world. So let's kind of start there. Prior to Jesus, was the idea of resurrection an idea in the Old Testament? And if so, what was it? Okay, that's a great question. So the Old Testament doesn't present resurrection explicitly. Okay. As it is presented in the New Testament or in Christian theology. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't even explicitly present it in the way that it came to be thought of prior to Jesus' birth by the Pharisees and some other uh, Jewish sects mm-hmm. in the period of time between the closing of the Old Testament, last book of Malachi, and before uh, the canon of the New Testament before the New Testament itself. It's hinted at in places like Job 19.25, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth again shall stand. But even there, what's being emphasized is Job is saying, I'm aware, I'm confident that I will be vindicated by my Redeemer. Mm -hmm. He's not so much talking about his Redeemer living. He's talking about his Redeemer, his Vindicator acting. So uh, when we read a passage like Mark 12, uh, verse 18 and following, where the Sadducees had asked this question to Jesus about about leveret marriage, about the, the idea that the older brother 
marries a wife and the older brother passes away, then it's one of the other brother's duties uh, to take the woman, the older brother's who's deceased wife, as their wife to support her. And, and there was an ethical yep. concern that was being met there. They, they asked this question, if she marries all the brothers, then whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Well, it's an absurd question because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Now, we modern Christians who celebrate the resurrection not only every year, but basically every week in mm -hmm. our worship services, uh, we, we tend to wonder, why didn't the Sadducees believe in the idea of resurrection? The better question would be, why did the Pharisees believe hmm. in it? And the answer is that the Pharisees believed in resurrection because the Old Testament showed us in a variety of ways the kind of God that Israel's God was. He was faithful to his people. He was greater than all the other gods, and he was even greater than the twin powers of evil, sin and death. And so the Pharisees rightly believed that God was going to set right his creation, that he was going to undo the fall, that he was going to uh, bring, bring about an age in, of paradise, that sort of thing. Well, that requires resurrection. Sure. Because if sin isn't defeated, if the wages of sin, which is death, are not defeated, then he hasn't set right the world. But as I said, the Old Testament showed them what God was like and what God's plan was like, rather than stating it for them in explicit propositions. It, it's important to recognize this. It showed them that God was going to raise the dead it didn't tell, tell them, them. Uh, in specific verses that you could proof text that he was going to do that. So maybe a 1953 letter from C.S. Lewis will illustrate this point. And in okay. 1953, after Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia had become best-selling books, a little girl wrote to him and asked him uh, about... Uh, about who Aslan was in our world. In that book, he, he says he goes by another name in your world. And she says that she felt an indefinable stirring and longing and love for Aslan. And she wants to know, what's his name in our world? And Lewis replies to her by saying, as to Aslan's other name, I want you to guess. Has there never been anyone in this world who, one, arrived at the same time as Father Christmas, two, said he was the son of the great emperor, three, gave himself up for someone else's fault to be jeered at and killed by wicked people, and four, came back to life again? Hmm. Now, don't you really know his name in this world? And Lewis did not reply like the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the lion, and the lion was with the emperor, and the lion was the emperor. Instead, Lewis gave this child an answer to the riddle of Aslan's identity that, that was more showing than telling, but the Aslanology was every bit as high. And so 
In the same way, the Old Testament doesn't tell us directly what God's plan is for eternity, but it shows us in multiple ways that he's a God who is faithful. And, and so from a close study of their Jewish scriptures, Jewish scholars in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament fully worked out this idea. And so the Pharisees had a developed idea of resurrection. And we see this in Paul's life. Paul mm-hmm. is a Pharisee. He's on trial in Acts 23. He, his strategy is to divide the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, I am a Pharisee, and I, I am on trial for belief in the resurrection. And then it all... Um, he pits it, them it against each other. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, but one thing that we must not miss is that although most first century Jews believed in the idea of resurrection, most did, but some did not, like the Sadducees, the resurrection they expected was the resurrection of all the righteous dead, Hmm. not one man. And it was at the end of the age, not in the middle of time. And so Christian belief that God has raised this man, Jesus, from the dead in our lifetimes was shocking. Okay. And that's almost kind of what Paul says, where Jesus, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, right? Jesus is the first fruit. They weren't ready for that. Right. <clears throat> now, whoa, the resurrection we're waiting for is the resurrection they were expecting. Right. And in, in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to a church that has some Jews in it, but is primarily Gentile. Mm-hmm. And so they had been encountering uh, Greek groups who did believe in afterlife, and some that didn't believe in Mm -hmm. him. The Platonists had some idea of an afterlife. Uh, The Stoics had some minimal idea of an afterlife. The Epicureans had no idea of an afterlife. (laughs) And, uh, and, And, but what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's arguing from the resurrection of Jesus to the general resurrection. What's, what's, they're not doubting that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Paul is, is saying it's inconsistent of you to affirm and base your lives on the resurrection of Jesus, but to deny a general resurrection at the end of the age. So uh, I've heard frequently I hear p- preachers preach from 1 Corinthians 15 as though it proves the resurrection of Jesus. That's not Paul's point. He didn't have to do that. They believed 15. that. They already believed that. Okay. With that Old Testament idea in mind and kind of even piggybacking on some of the Pharisees, Sadducees discussion, what does Scripture tell us about the resurrection of Jesus? It tells us a lot. Okay. Uh, But I'll unpack that a bit more. Okay. Not fully. (laughs) Uh, I think first we have to separate the question. What What does the Bible tell us about the resurrection as resurrection? Just considering that, what do we see about God and his plan for our world. Well, number one, resurrection tells us that the created order is good. Mm. It's it's world-affirming. It's life-affirming. It affirms the physicalness of human life. Where There were a lot of uh, philosophies, let's say like Platonism, that denied the goodness of human life. It tells us that God's end game is not to escape the physical world as Plato taught, but rather to redeem it. 
that we will spend it bodies, we will spend eternity in bodies, is an affirmation of the value of the goodness of the creation, yeah. the goodness of physical life. Resurrection is also testimony to the faithfulness of God. He does not abandon his people. He does not forsake them. It's not simply a new positive way to think about death. It's, it's not uh, a new understanding of death and as, as, as if to say, well, death isn't so bad after all. Death is our friend. That's not what it's saying. Yeah. The scripture is clear. Death is an enemy. But it's a defeated enemy. But chronologically, as Paul says, it will be the last enemy to be defeated. So the resurrection means that death is really, really bad, but that God is greater than the evil of death mm. and that death is defeated. But interestingly enough, it's not just anyone who's resurrected first. It's one man, specifically Jesus of Nazareth. And that tells us that the Father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. He affirmed everything that Jesus taught about God and his plan. And so the resurrection is the linch point. It's the crucial part of the gospel of, that we Christians yeah. preach. Now, I do think that we, we would do well uh, to tie the resurrection to the crucifixion. Sure. It's cross and resurrection. It's Good Friday and yeah. Resurrection Sunday. But it would also do well to tie both of them to the Ascension. Mm. So, interestingly enough, oh, oh, we ate lunch together today, mm -hmm. and over lunch you asked me uh, about Bart Ehrman, or maybe someone else brought Bart Ehrman up. In his book entitled, How Did Jesus Become God?, Bart Ehrman argues that the earliest church did not think of Jesus as being equal to God the Father, but rather they thought that God had exalted Jesus. Now, the New Testament teaches that God exalted Jesus. Sure. Philippians 2 is a classic passage of that. He, although he was in uh, the image of God or the likeness of God, he, he, he took a step down. He, yep. he gave up that glory that he had, and he became uh, a human being. He was found in the likeness of, of man, and he humbled himself to the point of being crucified, and God raised him and vindicated him so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess mm -hmm. Christ is Lord. So obviously, there is an exaltation theme in Scripture. Uh, where, where Bart errs is that he doesn't admit or recognize that that exaltation theme comes after the dissension theme. Mm. That, that uh, what Paul is saying is not simply, Jesus was this great man, he was one of God's best, and God has chosen him to honor him by elevating him and giving him a lesser godlike status. Mm -hmm. He's saying he started at the top level yeah. at the penthouse, he went to the basement, and now he's back it's the, the whole penthouse. humiliation, exaltation, right? They go together. And, and so the really interesting thing for our conversation today, coming back to Bart Ehrman, is he says that the earliest Christians began to believe that Jesus was divine as a result of the resurrection. Okay. And I would agree. Sure. Now, what Bart actually means when he says 
the resurrection was the reason, what he actually means is their mistaken belief mm. that Jesus had been raised uh, was the reason. I don't think that's even close to being right, because uh, why would they have a mistaken belief to begin with? Uh, so Bart is partly right, but he's ultimately wrong. What I think happened is that Jesus' disciples finally got it. They understood what he'd been saying all along. And when you read the Gospels, his disciples are confused in many places. Well, pretty much the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but but what's, what's going on there is that we have, we've read a whole story. Mm-hmm. We're looking back at it from, from the ending. They're not, they haven't reached the ending. Yep. We would have been confused if we too had their cultural upbringing, their religious presuppositions, that sort of thing, uh, because the things that Jesus is saying and doing are shocking, mm-hmm. and and we we sort of read the the Bible carelessly because we've heard the whole story so often. We've heard about his birth every year. Yep. You know, a virgin got pregnant uh, without having sex. What sure, a surprise! Sure. What you know? What, what's what's the problem? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the problem. Uh, this man was raised from the dead, a man who was brutally killed, publicly killed, buried for days before he uh, was resurrected. He ascended to the Father. You know, these are shocking things to have happen, yeah. uh, not, not in a book, but right before your eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I, I tend to go light on the disciples. Uh, so... I think Bart is right that the resurrection is crucial to Christianity and to Christian theology, to, to us getting it. Uh, but, but I think he's being simplistic. If Jesus hadn't taught the things he did before he died, and if he hadn't been taken up in the ascension, his disciples still wouldn't have gotten who he was. They would have just said, well, that was a close call. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, they they wouldn't have seen him as resurrected, but they would have seen him like Lazarus or some people. Sure, in the Old it was Testament. a miracle, but that's yeah. it. It's life again. It's it's resuscitation. It's not resurrection. But resurrection is an altogether different sort of thing, and uh, and so this is the key as to why the earliest church, the earliest church, not the patristic church the earliest, the mm-hmm. original church, the founding members of the group, yeah. who were all Jewish, could worship a man along with Yahweh and see that they were doing nothing wrong is the resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. Okay. So you've just told me all of this stuff about the significance of this, about um, the reason the disciples worshiped Jesus as mm-hmm. God because they saw a resurrection. Yet today and then people doubted the resurrection. Right. So maybe thinking mm-hmm. about then and today and honestly don't think the reasons people doubt are all that different, but why do people doubt the resurrection of Jesus? Great question. Well, first off, as I've alluded to earlier, this is a really extraordinary idea, isn't it? And, and we tend not to be as amazed by it mm. because it's a familiar idea to us. Yeah. Secondly, we live in a modern age. 
And, and we've read people like David Hume. David Hume famously said that a miracle is a violation of natural law and, and that a sure and certain experience had taught us that natural laws just cannot be violated. Yeah. I remember reading David Hume in your uh, philosophical theology colloquium, mm-hmm. and I was just angry the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think Hume's fundamental problem is that he doesn't know what a miracle is. Mm. A miracle is not a violation of natural law. At least biblical miracles sure. are not. It's, it's rather an action by a being of a higher order within our world of space and time for his own purpose. So uh, I like to illustrate it this way. Think, imagine with me that you're a bird. Okay. Okay. Now, you're a really smart bird. You're a philosophical bird. You're well-read. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and you live in the deepest forest you can imagine. So deep that you've never seen a human being. You get up one morning uh, and you go about your day. You, you fly off cover miles at a time. Uh, you sing songs. You, you catch bugs and worms and eat them. You, you may lay eggs. You uh, just play games with your bird friends, that sort of thing. At the end of the day, you fly back to the tree where your nest is, and you find that it's on the ground, neatly severed at its base, a straight line right through it. Hmm. Now, because you're a smart bird, you understand that sometimes trees get eaten up by parasites and they just weaken and decay from within, but you know your tree is a healthy tree. You understand that sometimes storms blow them over or lightning strikes them, but you weren't so far off that there would have been that kind of storm without you knowing it. So, you're a philosophical bird and you've read David Hume. How do you make sense of this happening? Yeah. Now, you and I know exactly what happened. A human being came in with a chainsaw and cut yep. it to the ground for some reason. But if you're that bird, never having encountered a human being in your life, but you've read David Hume, who says a miracle is a violation of natural law, and you understand the laws of birds and trees and storms, you won't believe your eyes. That is where Hume goes wrong. Okay. He misdefines a miracle. So, that's why we find it hard to believe, because it's an amazing story, and because we bought into the modern myth that miracles are impossible, that science proves miracles can't happen. But science has never proven such a thing. Science tells us what normally happens, hmm. not what must happen. Say one more time for us. So Hume's idea is a miracle is a violation of natural law, right? Right. How did you define, again, the way the Bible describes a miracle or defines a miracle? A miracle is an action by a being of a higher order in okay. our world for his purposes. Okay. I think that that's clearly important to keep in mind right. as we think about that. And he could act directly or indirectly, but he acts. So we've talked about kind of what Scripture tells us about the resurrection, why people doubt the resurrection, 
what is the evidence in support of the historical resurrection of Jesus? It's a miracle, mm-hmm. but there's clearly evidence that right. supports it. What is that yeah. evidence? And, and I, I think evidence is so important. Uh, no one should believe in a miracle without evidence. Okay. So, uh, so first off, Jesus was buried. We, we know that. Now, interestingly enough, another skeptic friend of mine, uh, John Dominic Crossan. You have a lot of skeptic friends, too, by the I way. I do. By, <laughs> <laughs> most, most of the books that I've authored or edited or co-authored have been published by, uh, by liberal presses rather than conservative evangelical yeah. presses. And John Dominic Crossan was the co-chair of the infamous Jesus Seminar, and he's a dear friend of mine. And um, I just think he's wrong about almost everything. (laughs) And for those listening, if they've watched anything on the resurrection of Jesus around Easter on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, they've probably seen John Dominic Crossan. They've probably heard him. Because he's on all of those programs. Yes, he's a cottage industry. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so... Now, Dom has what, in my mind, might be the best objection to the empty tomb. Okay. And, and that objection is there never was a full tomb. Uh, Dom thinks, and Bart Ehrman has come to believe, after years of affirming the opposite, that Dom is right on this point, that Jesus was never actually buried. I have a whole talk that I do on this, but we don't have time for that. But obviously, uh, being buried is a necessary condition for being res- resurrected. Mm-hmm. So uh, he says that what, what actually happened in the ancient world was that Romans used crucifixion as a way to intimidate uh, their people they wanted to control. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a form of political terrorism. And he's absolutely right about that. He says that that Romans uh, generally did not bury the victims of crucifixion because most religious groups in the ancient world, and everybody was religious in the ancient world in Mm -hmm. one way or another. Even the worst people were religious people. And they, most religions in the ancient world had strict... uh, laws or regulations about what was to be done with a body after it it died to guarantee the best sort of afterlife, if there was an afterlife. And so <clears throat> uh, part of the intimidation was not only that it was a brutal way to kill you, a slow, painful, humiliating way to kill you, it was also knowing that your body won't be disposed of correctly. Mm. Now, th- there are several things that could be said. To respond to that. Number one is that all of the information about that sort of intimidation comes from a later time. It comes uh, particularly with respect to Jews. It comes from the Jewish rebellion that was put down in the year AD 70. So some 30, 40 years after Jesus. Right. But but I think I think the most important thing for us to get is that they didn't need to cruise to uh, humiliate Jesus in terms of his burial to curse him because the Old Testament already taught cursed is he 
who dies on a tree. tree. Yeah. And also we have we have physical evidence of crucifixion victims, Jewish crucifixion victims being buried in ossuaries and that sort of thing. So the evidence doesn't support a categorical claim. And and then when you look at the story uh, in context, what, why does Pilate kill Jesus? He doesn't really, he's not really concerned about what Jesus has been teaching. He's concerned about the Jews. He wants to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. And so he kills him to keep the Jewish leadership pacified. But then he allows him to be buried to keep the rabble who are following him pacified as well. Interesting. There's, a, there's an extremely plausible uh, motive for Jesus to be buried. Okay, that's, mm. but he's, he was buried. And, and by uh, scholarly standards, Crossan uh, and Ehrman are the tiniest of minorities. Almost every biblical scholar, no matter whether they're theist, liberal, or conservative, will say Jesus was buried. Secondly, uh, the tomb was found to be empty by female disciples. If, if you were the, the apostles writing a story about it, you wouldn't humiliate yourself in that way. All the apostles flee. And the women have the courage to go to the tomb uh, to anoint the body on the third day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would be the people finding him. And, and, and you wouldn't tell the story in such a bewildering fashion. The women find that he's, the tomb is empty. He's been raised. They come back to you. Jesus has told you that he'd be crucified, that he'd be buried, that he'd be resurrected. And the women tell you it happened just like Jesus said, and you don't believe it, you knucklehead. Yeah. So uh, there is that. There's, it satisfies what scholars call the criterion of embarrassment. Uh, then third, different people in different places and circumstances report that Jesus appeared to them. And one of them, the Apostle Paul, mm-hmm. was, uh, was opposed to Christianity until the risen Jesus yeah. appeared to him. So, and, and Paul makes it clear that the risen Jesus appeared to me, the resurrected Jesus, not simply I had a vision. Yep. And then fourth, uh, the disciples themselves had a dramatic change of heart and believed in Jesus' resurrection despite persecution. So before his crucifixion, they're persecuted, they, they run and hide. After his persecution, they stand up and die. Yeah. And, and so that tends indirectly to support their testimony. Now, people... People do die for lies. Uh, sometimes sure. I hear amateur apologists say, uh, nobody dies for a lie. Plenty of people have died for lies. People don't die for lies that they know are lies. That's, that's the point. Uh, so then I think this is a crucial point. It's almost never mentioned. Uh, and I think it's because it's so obvious uh, that people just say it goes without saying, and things that go without saying go unsaid. Uh, Christianity began in Jerusalem. It just did. And, and every scholar that I've ever read understands this. And it began very soon after 
Jesus's crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But Jerusalem, less than two months after his crucifixion, less than a week after his crucifixion, is is the last place on earth that you would start a religion based on our leader was killed and raised from the dead. Because if his body was still in the grave, all they would have to do would be go out, hey, over there. roll the stone away, drag the carcass through the street. What do you got to say now? Yeah. Or if he was never buried, they would just have to say, well, that's interesting because he was never buried. But we don't find anything like that. And so I think that is great evidence that's frequently overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next point would be that resurrection belief requires a mutation in Jewish belief. Okay. And all of the earliest Christians were Jewish. Not a one yeah. in the bunch that, that wasn't Jewish. But as we noted, those Jews who did believe in resurrection and those Jews who didn't believe in resurrection also understood a, it's bodily. It's not this spiritual, yep. ghostly sort not of thing. Not a phantasm. Like the Je- Jehovah's Witnesses talk about or something. Uh, B, it's at the end of the age, not in our lifetimes. Mm. And it's all the righteous dead, not one man. And, and so what can account for that sort of belief? Only the resurrection uh, would be, yep. be my... Uh, be my thinking. Uh, here's another thing that that is frequently passed over. All of the earliest Christians were Jewish, and they worshipped on a day other than the Sabbath. Mm. They worshipped on Sunday. Yep. And and the scriptural testimony in Acts as to their habit of doing so, it's it's just kind of an offhand remark. It's not put out there. Here is a testament. You know, here's evidence <laughs> for the resurrection. We're worshiping on Sunday. Yep. They just call it the Lord's, Lord's Day. Day. Yeah. Why would they call it the Lord's Day? It was the day the Lord was resurrected. Here, here's another point, and I think this is even less understood because it does require some historical understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christianity began as a messianic movement. Jesus is not only the Savior. He's not only divine. He's not only a prophet. He's the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And there were plenty of messiahs a hundred years before Jesus, a hundred years after Jesus. Uh, We even read about two of them in the book of Acts, Mm -hmm. where Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, uh, says to the Sanhedrin, you better be careful uh, with punishing these guys that you don't go too far. Uh, Remember, there was this guy, Judas, we killed him, and his movement came to nothing. There was this guy, Thutis. We killed him. His movement came to nothing. So uh, if, if you were a Messiah, if you were somebody claiming to be the Messiah in the first century, you didn't need an IRA. Uh, you didn't need an individual retirement account. Yeah. Uh, because you didn't expect a long life. Okay. And so, summarily, just like all the other messianic claimants, Jesus is killed. Now, when that happened with every other group, they either dispersed, and that's what the majority did, or they, they took a leader from the same family. 
But notice nobody ever says James, the brother of Jesus, is our new leader. James worships his older brother. Yeah. That's an incredible thing. I can't imagine my younger brother ever <laughs> worshiping me, okay? And, and I don't know how to make sense of this as a historian because, because what they don't do is say, our leader whom you killed is still alive or, or is alive again. But the earliest Christians did do that. And the only way I can make sense of it as a historian is to say, it happened. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting, I've got two more reasons. Okay, and keep going. a lot These are of evidence good. for you, isn't Sure. It? Early Christians clearly worshipped Jesus. They, they reshaped the Passover around him, which he commanded them to do, mm-hmm. which is a, a startling statement of his deity, or that he recognized he was divine. Who else had the authority to monkey with the Passover? Yeah. And yet the Passover becomes the Lord's Supper. It's not something we do in memory of the Exodus anymore. It's something we do in memory of, him. of the crucifixion. Yeah. And, and, so, and it was at that point 2,000 years old? Yeah. So, I mean, Jews have been practicing this meal for 2,000 years, and Jesus right. changes it. Yep. There you go. <laughs> and so resurrection has to be part of the reason for that. And then finally... Early Christians preached the resurrection to Jews and to Greeks. And the resurrection was foolishness to Greeks. Plato, mm-hmm. Plato said the body is a prison. Epicureans uh, said that when a man dies, his blood spills out, and that's all there is to it. The Stoics said there's a spark of the divine in every human person, and at death that spark goes back into the pool of all the other sparks uh, collected together. But none of them believed in bodily resurrection. Hmm. And, and the Platonist kind of had some idea of pre-existence of souls and reincarnation. Right. But, but reincarnation is not resurrection. Uh, it's not one man. It's, it's not somebody coming back to bodily life after they've been dead and then living forever. Yep. Uh, so uh, they preach it. And they preach it to Jews, too but especially to Greeks. So uh, if you'll remember Acts 17, where Paul preaches at the Areopagus, uh, everything comes to a head, uh, not when he says that, that there's one God, that God has created everything, that he's made the entire human race out of one, one man. All of that's fine. When he says he's going to judge the world through a man whom he has proven by raising him from the dead, that's when it all comes to to pieces. Well, obviously, Paul understands their beliefs particularly well because he Mm -hmm. was pushing their buttons. Sure. He he knew their background beliefs. Why would he do that? Why would he say something that he knew would likely result in an uproar? Because he had to. Yeah, it's fundamental. Every single sermon in the book of Acts includes the resurrection. They're not all the same on other points, but every one of them includes the resurrection. It's not the gospel without the resurrection. So that's, that's a bit of the evidence that we have for the crucifixion. Yeah. And I think what's helpful about a lot of that is, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, where it's just a lot of those things go without saying. 
Like they're almost common sense. You think about them like, well, of course that would make sense. If you were doing this, then this would happen. And mm-hmm. so it, it's interesting because I think a lot of people are like um, a lot of modern a modernists are, you know, well, we're not able to prove this because there's there's no photography. There's no this or there's no that. But you're just laying out the facts of, well, if this <clears throat> happened, then this would be the result. And that's what we see. Right. Therefore, it makes a lot of sense. I wanted to tie in this other idea because I think practically speaking, it's really important for us. In our culture, uh, we talk a lot about, we talk a lot less about the resurrection minus Easter, and we talk a lot about going to heaven. Right. And yet the hope of the Christian faith and the Christian life is not going to heaven. That's right. It's the resurrection. Right. So how how is the resurrection tied to all of this? How should we begin to think about this differently? Okay. So I, I don't want to say that we don't go to heaven. Sure. <laughs> okay. But that's not our ultimate hope. That That's our immediate comfort. Okay. Uh, and Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, To be absent from the body is to be present. With the Lord. With the Lord. Yeah. And, and that is great comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but resurrection is not to be confused with simple life after death. Uh, and, and too many Christians have something like a view that would be something like Plato's view. Uh, the analogy of the cave. Uh, this world is the cave. It's a, it's a shadowy world. It, we, we only see images darkly, dimly of what is out there in the greater reality. Yeah. But when we leave the prison of the body, then we'll see it all directly and immediately. And, and that's consistent with his overall way of thinking. You, you can marvel at, at how intelligent Plato and Socrates were and how insightful, but resurrection is not simply that. It's not escaping from a lesser world and going to a higher world. It's not simply life after death. It's life after life after death. And so at, at death, uh, believers go to be with the Lord, and, and they enjoy the presence of the Lord consciously, in my view. Okay. Uh, they, they are aware of uh, that God has been faithful, that his promises have been kept, but they're also aware that there's much better to come. And, and that is then when Jesus returns and he calls the dead to life. And we are raised to meet him immortal. And we are forever with him in, in a, a recreated heavens and earth. Yeah. And, and a, in a, create, a recreation where there will be no death, there will be no sin, there will be no suffering, there will be no tears. Um, there will be no darkness. Mm. Uh, that sort of thing. But we'll still experience the physicality. Right. Yep. It's what you said. Right. Resurrection reminds us the physical is good. Right. It's God's creation. Right. And that was that was widely understood in the first century world, whether Jewish or Gentile, uh, that resurrection is something that happened to the body. That that it was not just reincarnation or or platonic escape, release, that sort of thing. 
And so, uh, in fact, we mentioned Paul preaching at the Areopagus. The Areopagus was founded on these words from Aeschylus in his Eumenides. When a man dies, the earth drinks up his blood. There is no resurrection. I've never heard that before. We've probably circled around this, but I think it's important to kind of end with this. We're approaching Easter. We're talking about the resurrection. You've shared all of this stuff about this is kind of a redefining moment for not only the disciples, but all of faith. Why is the resurrection so important to salvation? That is a great question. Number one is the basis of our salvation. Okay. It tells us that God has defeated sin and death. Number two, it guarantees our resurrection. Paul does speak about it as uh, in two places, not just one in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus is the first fruit mm-hmm. of the resurrection. Now, the first fruit uh, was, was a Jewish harvest custom that uh, when they began to take in the harvest after planting and watering and caring for uh, the first fruits, they would celebrate. They'd have a feast in anticipation of a greater harvest mm. to come. And so his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Yeah. His resurrection guarantees our life before, life after death, before life after life after sure. death. That sort of thing. But he does more than that. He gives us confidence in this life. It, it robs death of its terror. Uh, The worst that a despot can do, say like Putin, is kill you. And we Christians have a Lord who's already been killed and defeated it. Hmm. So we can boldly say, all you can do is kill me. That's why it matters. Yeah. And I think uh, probably in Western Christianity, we forget that a lot. There, there are political and ethical uh, meanings that come from the resurrection. Yeah. We can't dispose of human life because it's valuable enough to God to raise it from the dead. Hmm. We can't support abortion. We can't support infanticide. We can't support racist killings. We can't support... Uh, autocratic leaders around the world who are punishing uh, the innocent, who are just raping and pillaging uh, for their own gains. We should speak out against all of that. Hmm. Because life as God intended it, human beings made in his image are very good. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Stewart. I think there's a ton that you've said that's insightful. And I think everyone will find something that I think is new to them or something that they can kind of hang on to um, as they think about the resurrection. And so I would really encourage if you're listening to this and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but Dr. Stewart, he kind of referenced a few, he's written a ton of books, edited a ton of books. They're all on Amazon, right? You can find them all there. And so uh, we'll put a link to his Amazon page, and uh, he's got a lot of books on the resurrection, Um, wrote his dissertation on the historical Jesus, Um, a lot of books that he edited from the 
the Greer Heard Forum, where you get to hear a uh, a conservative scholar uh, debate with a liberal scholar on some of these important issues. And so I would really encourage you to go and check out some of those resources. If you're enjoying this content, you find it helpful, please subscribe to stay up to date. You can leave a review, share it with your friends. My desire is that what we share with you here will equip and inspire you to live the gospel, serve the city, and be the church after Sunday. Thanks for listening to After Sunday. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show, leave us a review, and share it with others. If you would like to learn more about the ministry of Vintage Church, check out VintageChurchMovement.com.